This is Bonjour Chai, the Born This Way edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal. I'm here with Lana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we are kicking off Pride Month with two members of Toronto's new queer Jewish incubator cohort, and we'll hear from chef and author Michael Twitty. But first, Alana David, welcome back. I feel like it's been ages since we've had a regular show. I was here. I- I've been here. You guys, welcome back. What's, what's been happening? You did a great job last week, Alana. Uh, I'm, I'm ha- I was happy to hear it. Thank you. You really did. I love that interview. I even got an email from our old pal, Melissa Lanceman about how she loved listening to my all-female panel. Oh, nice. So, there you go. Wow. What's been on your radars lately? What have you been up to? <laughs> Anybody? Anything? David, you're getting married anytime I'm soon. I'm getting married. I'm getting married in 50 days. So honestly, uh, I was even going to ask you, Rabbi, for advice. We're, we're I, like, what am I missing? I, I don't even know what I need to prepare anymore at this point. Do I need? Do I need like um, individualized or unique kippas for the ceremony? Maybe, maybe. Okay. We should talk. Oscar. We could. Um, but uh, I think you should make, get them uh, call Stetson and uh, have them make you individual kippas um, for all of your guests. I'm picturing like mini cowboy hats, like ones that are the size of a kippa that just kind of sit was, on your I head. I was going to say, you know what? We are not that stereotype, and yet someone's going to walk in with cowboy boots and maybe like a, a belt buckle because it is close to the time of Stampede, too. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh. Luckily for you, we do have a, uh, a, a Jewish... Uh, an expert or somebody who's doing a project on uh, queer Jewish weddings uh, coming up in our main segment. So maybe you'll have a chance to ask her. Nice. Um, I look forward to it. But uh, yeah, we can definitely talk about all the other Jewish bits um, at, uh, at some point offline or later, or we'll, you know, Let's let's talk about it later. Just make sure, do me a favor. Speaking of Jewish bits. Oh, I was going to go right the same place where I think you're going. I was going to say, just make sure you don't have a Zoom um, event because uh, you don't want to fall into the trap of this Minneapolis couple. Uh, I know it's old news. It happened a few weeks ago. Um, I, I cannot say this better than the New York Post. You're just so excited to to bring it back. Of course. I I can't say it better than the New York Post who win the awards on like puns uh, all the time, right? A a randy couple who zoomed into services at a Minneapolis synagogue hosting a bat mitzvah forgot to turn off their camera as they began to make a mitzvah of their own, canoodling in full view of verklempt congregants who were subjected to the softcore sideshow for nearly an hour. The impromptu version of Debbie Does Deuteronomy unfolded May 14th in the Twin Cities Temple Beth El. Right, so... Uh, that happened for nearly an hour. Did someone the hosting the call not just no, turn so their this video is the off? Seri- this is the reason why it's actually a story, right? So this goes back to something a little more serious that people don't realize. It's not that people forgot. It's that the conservative movement has this idea. Um, halachic approach to Zoom that says that you have a Zoom service on Shabbat, but it's set it and forget oh, it, right? That they uh, put it on before Shabbat oh and nobody God. touches it and you can't do anything, right? Because it's not life or death. Because it's, I guess well, I don't know. It might be life or death, or death for this person's erection, but you know, like, let's, I'm kidding. Uh, let's not go there. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, you went there. it says something um, interesting about the state we are in in terms of Zoom and hybrid services these days. I think that. Um, if we're at the point where people forget that their camera is on and just need to like be on the Zoom service just to sort of tick off a box, yes, I went to Ashley's bat mitzvah, right? Then, and I don't, you know, I don't need to do anything else other than do that. Then maybe we should be really, you know, and I know we've brought this up, we should be nearing the end of Zoom services for all. Was this a couple from the show or just yeah. like a Zoom bomber? No, they Zoomed into the bat mitzvah. And they didn't the realize they were just... 
They were like, great idea. Let's just do this. And no, we're not worried. They forgot that their camera Services was on. got them in the mood. Maybe it's Shabbos. It's a mitzvah, <laughs> right? Sac- think, sacred time. I just think that they clearly, you know, you forget that your camera's on and you go about doing whatever it is that you're doing. And, and that's it. And it just goes to show how little people care about being on a Zoom service. Um, and I think that there's something real about that, um, combined with this idea that I think the conservative movement uh, should be rethinking their set it and forget it rules about, you know, in case some stuff like this happens. I mean, this just reminds me, at the end of all of this, we should have learned protocols of Zoom two years ago, but it just makes me think of every time I've done like a project online for Zoom, my parents come on and I warn everyone in advance for the cast and crew it says, my parents are coming on, they do not know how to operate Zoom very well. and whatever happens they are able to they you always start unmuted but they they or you start muted but they unmute themselves they start talking they start yelling at each other to be quiet and everyone is like who are these two people who are making all this noise luckily my parents were not having sex on zoom for my projects yet yet who knows yeah who knows who knows <laughs> I, I just want the merch, right? I want. I went to Ashley's Bat Mitzvah and all I got was this happy ending. <laughs> oh, all right, calm down, boys. Um, Let's move on. <laughs> we've got a great show coming up. Um, we've got uh, this great cohort. Um, and so without further ado, let's hear from them right after our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by Candorel. Coming soon, a luxury master-planned condominium community rising at the corner of Bathurst and St. Clair. Situated directly on the subway and streetcar line, a monument of architecture and interior design, a timeless expression of glamour and grace. Forêt Forest Hill. Register today at liveatforet.ca. That's live at f-o-r-e-t.ca. LGBTQ Judaism has gone from the point of merely being aware that the idea of queer Jews exists uh, to where we stand today with Jewish law and practice working towards inclusion in most every denomination. The narratives we discuss are no longer simply ones where queer Jews declare that they are here and we better get used to it, to ones where the intersection of these two identities are felt deeply and mined for a richer sense of meaning. This is the work that our guests today are seeking to do within the context of the Queer Jewish Incubator at the Miles Nadal JCC in downtown Toronto. Sadie Epstein-Fine is a writer and performer who is exploring the queer corners of Yiddish theater, and Toby King is a poet, performer, and educator that is using her time in the incubator to look at queer Jewish wedding ceremonies. Sadie, Toby, welcome to Bonjour Hi. Hi, thank you. Hello, thank you for having us. Can you uh, start, uh, both of you, maybe starting with Toby, uh, tell us a little bit about the projects that you're doing and where uh, you see yourselves uh, integrating these two clearly deep held, deeply held parts of your identities as queer individuals and as Jews. Yeah, so my project is queering the Jewish wedding. And I'm, I'm someone who's really interested in ritual and finds real deep meaning and beauty in Jewish ritual. And at the same time, there's a lot of heteronormativity buried in our traditions. Um, and that's been something I've been thinking about for quite a few years and just sort of coming more into my own Jewish practice and looking at ways that 
Jewish ritual and Jewish tradition can be queered and uh, can be, I don't want to even say adapted. I almost said adapted, but I don't think it's adaptation. I think it's progress. I think it's process. And I'm a big advocate of Judaism as an ongoing process and Judaism as something that is constantly evolving. And in fact, that that's our strength and that's how we've made it this far um, through change and evolution and uh, that is deeply rooted and tied to tradition. So I wanted to look at that specifically in the framework of union ceremony of like the Jewish wedding and queerness and how uh, queer Jewish folk have been like creating these life cycle events for themselves um, and to like gather gather that for posterity and also to create resources for the queer Jewish future um, of how we've done it so far and how we're going to keep doing it and keep making changes. Excellent. Sadie. Yeah, I mean, I first just want to say that I love hearing Toby speak um, every time about their project because I feel like I learn more about Jewishness and, and my own Jewishness when I hear them speak. So it's really special for me. Um, and my project. Uh, so I, I, you know, an important part of when you read my bio is that I'm also a writer, I'm an artist. So I'm bringing like these three very integral pieces of who I am to this project. My, m myself as an artist, myself as a Jewish person, and myself as a queer and trans person. Um, and so my project is called Other Daughters. Uh, with the S in brackets, and it uh, is reimagining the Tevia story, the the story we all know from Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm focusing on the story of his two youngest daughters, who are mentioned a lot in the original um, Sholem Aleichem stories, but are not given a lot of airtime in Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and so they're Bielka, and who's the youngest, and Sprinza, who's the uh, fourth daughter. Um, and and in 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 my version, um, Bielka is queer and runs away with her husband, who's also queer, and they're each other's beards. Um, and Sprinza, who in the original stories actually dies by suicide, she she drowns herself in a river. Um, I, I felt it was really important to include her story as well because, uh, you know, we all know and love Fiddler. I mean, so most, I, I, you know, I feel like the majority of Jews are raised on Fiddler, right? Like that's what we all, like for, as a kid, I felt like that's what we all rallied around. Um, and yet there were, there were these pieces of me that were missing and that were not included, you know? Um, I was also raised by queer people. I have two moms. Um, and so there was this huge piece of me that was not uh, reflected in that story. And so in asking myself, like, whose stories are missing, um, for me, it wasn't just about focusing on queerness, but it was also focusing on, like, mental health. Um, that is just also often skipped and missed over uh, and missed. And so I think what I'm really interested in with this story is like, because um, Fiddler is so much about a new way of life and sort of transitioning into modernism. And now I'm sort of interested in transitioning back 
you know so how can the how can a queer person um who's radical and um maybe is seen to reject a lot of the traditional uh, values they were raised with, how actually can they be deeply rooted in their culture and in their people and also be queer? Sadie, you know, sometimes it's pretty common to hear the phrase, you know, second generation Canadians or second generation Albertans. But for your case, in your bio, you're a second generation queer person. As yeah. you mentioned, your parents are queer. And that's something that's that's not very, very common. I'm really just curious, what was it like growing up with uh, queer parents and what was your experience like while you were discovering your own identity? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good and big question. Um, yeah, and I think and I think it's interesting when like also in the context of, of, of Jewishness, because that was also a big factor that went into my making and that went into my upbringing, right? So I also have a Jewish sperm donor because my mom's um, you know, I, I was born in the 90s and my mom's already knew I would face discrimination based on having two two moms. Um, and so they didn't want me to be rejected from Jewish community. Mm. And so they intentionally made sure that I had a Jewish donor so that I was like, no one could question the authority of my blood, you know, that I was in fact 100% Jewish in my blood and also in my social upbringing. Um, then in terms of finding my own queerness, I mean, like, I, I actually really appreciate you asking that question because it's different. You know, I, um, I was raised in queer community. That's my home. And then, um, having to find that in myself, like I didn't have a coming out process, like in the same way, it just sort of was organic. I don't actually relate a lot to my queer and trans peers around that. Um, you know, my parents are not homophobic. <laughs> um, and so that was um, uh, different and also um, challenging because uh, like the people who I relate most to in this world are second generation queer spawn. Queer spawn is what we call ourselves, those who were raised by queer people, queer and trans people. Um, the, that's who I relate to because, you know, um, coming out is still such a big part of um, how so many people relate to their queerness and their transness and, and I can't relate. Well, I and just then, want to pick up on what you said earlier yeah. in terms of you don't always relate to the queer community or the trans community. Uh, what, what is the reason for that? Mm. Why don't I relate? Well, uh, mo uh, many queer and trans people, most queer and trans people are raised by straight people. And so by coming out, they, they have to find their own community um, they have to seek that out. And I was born into a room of 13 people who identified as lesbians. You know, I've known lesbians my whole life. When I came out, I wasn't seeking. I was in, I was in community with, you know, 50 year old lesbians, um, and some trans folk. And so, um, that's really different. Um, and of course I've, found my own, you know, younger community, like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm married, I have queer friends, like, um, but, but I, I didn't have that seeking process. And I didn't have that coming out process. And if you're queer, you know, you know, that that is such an, I mean, maybe unfortunately, but that's still such a big part of our story, of, of, of my community story, and one that I don't have, right. So like, if you think about sort of touchstones or cornerstones of of identity, right? And I am, um, 
that's a big touchstone of queer and trans identity is how did you come out? What's your coming out story? Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass the baton back to Toby. Though I want to hear your experience as well on this. In terms of Toronto's Jewish community, how did you find it? Um, I don't know. When, not that we need to go into your whole story, Toby, unless you're comfortable. But like when you did um, come out, was that something that you found easy? Were people accepting in the community? Was it difficult? You had to like find your niche people in it. What was that like? Uh, I've had a lot of ease, actually, and I, I know I'm, I'm lucky in a sense to have that. Um, a big part of it was I just grew up in, in very progressive circles, and, and though I did have to, I didn't grow up directly in queer community, I, I had queer community to, like, guide me through that process, and I, I really do think that there's a lot of narratives, and I think it's, it's being challenged, but I think there's still a lot of, like, mainstream narratives is like coming out as like a moment when it's like no it's a process it's a real process and an ongoing one um and yeah I was raised in pretty progressive circles I I grew up going to um Machina Gesher uh which is a little uh Jewish summer camp uh that's a little uh socialist Jewish summer camp one of our our last bastions of 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 the blue shirts between uh Habanim Dror youth movement and Hashomer Tzair youth movement um and especially in just sort of the era where I was sort of in my early teenage years it was a very queer space and I got a lot of my like early queer education in a Jewish space um and my earliest queer mentors were my madrachim and madrachot at Gesher. And it just, um, those things just sort of tied very seamlessly together for me. Um, not to say that I didn't have pushback or barriers. I certainly, um, I went to Associated Hebrew Schools until the end of middle school. I, I consider myself a, a Hebrew school dropout. And I have a very distinct memory of a health class where um, I, as the young, uh, very uh, insistent ally that I was, um, I, I put quotes around that for the audio, um, and asking about, uh, you know, we were talking about safe sex and protections. And I was like, well, what about not heterosexual sex and the policy at the time and to some amount of their credit I'm pretty sure the policy has changed now um the policy was that that was not allowed to be discussed so I definitely encountered those things but I had enough of a queer support system in my life and queer mentorship in my life that it was that was like, oh, that's a silly old bygone policy. And I, it didn't feel like something I had to care about or that I felt so personally affected by. And yeah, I, I sort of just came out amongst friends who were also figuring themselves out and amongst friends who we sort of just sort of found each other before we had figured ourselves out. There's a tendency among young queer folk to, to flock together before we've even figured it all out ourselves. And uh, just a couple of us sort of figuring it out together and sort of going through realizations together. So it didn't have to be like a big moment. It was just 
finding my people and us exploring together and and then like from then on out I just I found ways of I've always felt really strongly that my queerness and my Judaism are are intertwined things they're not separate and they're not even they're at times in tension but it's a harmonious tension it's a it's a giving tension it's a productive tension they're not in conflict I want to pick up on that for a bit um what I find fascinating about the two stories that you're um, you, you're both telling is that um, there is something really interesting about negotiating one's coming out and one's identity um, as a queer individual, um, which sometimes exists, but more often it does not exist at all uh, when one deals with their identity as a Jewish individual, right? It's, uh, you know, the way that Sadie, you were talking about this, my parents wanted to make sure that I was 100% Jewish from birth, right? And to know that this geneticism, the, right, this genetic approach, this blood thing was there, that we are born Jews and that it is given upon us and is one of the earliest identities that we have. And the identity that one makes as an adult is often just either about rejecting it or reaffirming it, um, but it's always sort of there. And while one's queerness may always be there, um, it's, you know, one of the paradigmatic things that we talk about is this, as you talk about this coming out moment. Well, I find it fascinating, for example, as an aside, um, that you are both talking about it as a normal thing. And it's what I imagine. I, I, I am an old, right? I went to university in the 90s and coming out was still a traumatic experience for just about every queer person that I knew. And I didn't know that many because people were still not coming out until their 20s and 30s and beyond. Um, and yet the two sort of play with each other. The way you talk about it, Toby, as, as an intersection, as their tension there and not, um, What have you ever guys ever reflected on this idea that sometimes um, the most innate identity that one is given um, and the, the identity that one gets to define um, and discuss and, and process, um, you know, how they're intersecting, intersecting and what they're dealing with. Um, does that come out in your work? Does that come out in your identities? Do you think about this at all? Um, is your minds being blown? Like, like, help me out here. I want to hear. Sadie, give me a, give, get us started. Right. So I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna um, counter actually what you're saying and that I was Please. given queerness. I was given queerness. Um, I was born into a queer family. I, um, when I, when I heard homophobia as a young person, that affected me. And that was about my identity and my parents' identity and what I hold nearest and dearest to my heart. And this is something that I really argue um, or argue for. This is something I feel really passionate about. And um, is that queer spawn are queer if they want to be. Of course, they can reject it as I could reject Jewishness if I wanted to, you know, but um, we experience the same things queer people experience and we are not given an out when we are born. Uh, and so just as much as I was raised Jewish, I was also raised queer. Um, and as we know, queerness is not just like who you want to sleep with, but it's also a community. It's our culture. Um, and for me, just as Toby was saying in different ways, my queerness and my Jewishness are, um, are interwoven because I grew up different and it was both because of being Jewish and because of being queer, right? I didn't get to celebrate Christmas and I didn't get to make a father's day card, you know, and those two things are, are sit in really similar places for me. Um, 
in terms of how that ha has affected m me as a human, I mean, I think, you know, this is something that a lot of queer spawn say as they grow up is like, because they relate to this difference or like, because they grew up sort of not relating to a lot of other folks, we grow up a lot more empathetic towards difference in general. Um, and I, and I think a lot of Jew I, I, I think probably a lot of Jews who don't grow up in majority Jewish w with majority Jewish people can also relate to that in that, like, I feel like I really can really understand and relate and empathize with difference, um, of all of like the, the myriad, the rainbow, the diversity of difference. And that's been integral in the work I do as like a community activist in the work I do with youth and also in my art. Um, I make work about people who are different, um, and who don't fit in and who have in otherwise been, you know, have had what we would call marginal identities. Toby, I saw you had some thoughts on that. Did you want to comment? I actually, I wanted to also push back on the question. Please, please do. <laughs> which is that, um, I negotiate with my Judaism every day. I'm in constant process and questioning, and negotiation with my Jewish identity also. As as much as I was um, born into it, um, and of course not not all Jews are or born into it, some some find their way to us. Um, but as much as I was, I'm also like my own constructions of my Judaism and what that means to me and how I practice and how I engage with my community and my people is to me also a, I keep saying process and I'm going to keep saying process probably, but a process and a negotiation. And to me, it's, it's much like my queerness in that way. I, I don't doubt that. I'm just fascinated by the fact that like, you know, and, and I agree. I mean, I'm part of, I, I, my, my Jewish identity is a process also, but I think that uh, the thing that I'm struck by is that we're we're given these Jewish identities and we have coming out parties or coming out moments, as you say, for our, for one's queer identity. And that we don't have coming out parties for Judaism, right? We don't have, oh, the moment I discovered I was Jewish, right? It, it happened. Well, we could. We could, absolutely. And we have conversion, you know, if one can chooses to convert. But I, I think that there's just something interesting in the distinction between the two types of identities, despite the fact that we do you know, define and redefine I, and rediscuss all the time and every day. I, I also kind of think we, we do have that. I, maybe this is because I, I, I live in a sort of intersections of like Jewish learning and Jewish professionalism. But like a question I've heard plenty is like, what's your Jewish journey? Like, tell us about your, your, your Jewish journey, your spiritual sure. journey. And like the ways I've found Judaism on my own and as an adult um, and on my own terms has felt honestly really similar to my coming out process of even though it was an identity given to me at birth, I did have a, a period of pushing away or rejection of it and then a period of what does this mean to me on its own? What does this mean to me as, as an adult? How can I find meaning in it and my own commu Jewish community as I've come into my own values and politics. And yeah, I, I, I just, I, maybe that's not like the narrative, the narratives or the mainstream narratives around these things are very different, 
but I think at least in my own lived experience and I think for more people's than more people than we maybe imagine it isn't so dissimilar I think people go through really similar journeys of like finding a Judaism that works for them. And I would even argue that like the bar, but mitzvah, b'nai mitzvah is the official coming out for Jews. You're up there on the bima. Everyone welcomes you into the community. This is your time to embrace. And Sarah says, now you belong to this tribe, this community. Let's throw you a party. It's it's not that dissimilar, Avi. And one, one thing I am curious about Toby and Sadie is we've talked about the intersectionality. We've talked about how sometimes challenging it is for queer Jews to feel comfortable or accepted, particularly in a in an Orthodox Jewish space. I am curious though, when you're trying to assert your Jewish pride, that maybe isn't always welcomed with open arms in queer spaces as well. Have you discovered that kind of tension or that, that uh, have you discovered trying to balance both of your identities since being in this incubator? I mean, not in the incubator itself. The incubator itself is a wonderfully right at the intersection of those identities. And so it's, yeah. it's not a worry. And again, I, I've been extremely lucky to find a lot of community at those intersections. Um, honestly, a lot of my own social circles are queer Jews. And sometimes I forget that that's like a minority within a minority and not just like, isn't everyone? Yeah. Um, but I will say... I, I haven't experienced exactly, like, I, it's not that I have experienced direct anti-Semitism in the queer community, though I know people who have. Um, it's more that it does feel at times, for me, that in Jewish spaces, even ones that don't totally understand my queerness, I can come in with it. And I have been in queer spaces that that want me to leave my Judaism at the door. How so? What do they mean by leaving the Judaism at the door? I think it's just more like a... I think particularly in queer spaces that are more... Don't, don't bring your... There's a like... Sort of... A, there's maybe also just sort of a, a bit of a leftist like anti-religion attitude that's part of it and maybe as someone who's like more of a more of a religious Jew um and there's also this like western lack of understanding of like it's not quite just a religion and not just a culture it's both of these things and that the like hardline difference between that those things doesn't even really exist and like um I, I think maybe that's like a bit of a like western leftist issue that overlaps into a queer community. I hear that. Yeah, I, I think just in that sense. Sadie, is that the same is that the same for you? No. And Toby and I grew up really differently, which I think is integral to our answers, right? Like I grew up in a family I grew up in a really secular family. Um and my Zadie even my Zadie and my grandma like rejected formal Judaism, you know? So like I haven't been involved in religious space ever, except for like some cousins' weddings, you know? And so I think as as y'all have been talking, um, I've been like reflecting myself and it's like what, um, I think actually I was one of those leftist Jews, you know, who was sort of like, don't bring religion, like, like leave religion at the door or something. Not actually formally, but now I'm like sort of realizing that in myself. Um, 
And it's actually only been recently. And my mom and I have sort of been figuring out this process together. It's like, how do we relate to our Jewishness in our queerness? And I think what we've really realized is that like, for, for us, it has a lot to do with politics, you know, like the history of like Jewish radical politic is strong. And we both really relate to that. And then I think it's coming into spaces like the like this incubator, like this cute queer Jewish incubator where like I've actually realized and I've been realizing like actually how important my Jewish identity is um, in that, you know, like so like last night we all had a gathering and I like read the first couple of scenes of my play. It was brilliant. And- it was amazing. <laughs> Guys, no idea what's coming. Right, and that was the response. And I was like, fuck the larger, sorry. uh, uh, (laughs) You're allowed to swear. You're allowed, you're allowed. (laughs) Fuck the larger community. Like, this is, and I was like, right, like, this is going to resonate with my community, with my queer Jewish community. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so it's actually never been a tension. It's more of a coming home for me that I think I didn't realize. Um, I didn't realize that that aspect of myself was maybe like missing from my, from my everyday life. Um, and also what a, um, for me, I think I'm, I'm realizing more and more. It's like, uh, it's, it's a part of the assimilation that we all, that we all are constantly trying to resist. Right. Is like, uh, uh, the, the assimilation of white supremacy and it's like coming into these Jewish spaces I'm like oh right this aspect of my culture and my identity is really really important to me and I want to continue to cultivate it. So with this project what are you hoping to achieve for the larger community? Is this a, a play that you're writing for Jews, for queer people, for people who are neither to understand the experience? What's your audience in your mind? Okay, this is my general belief in about everything is that like, <laughs> um, is that the specific is universal, right? So for me, I'm like, I, for me, I'm like, I am writing this for queer Jews, you know, ultimately, do I think, you know, straight goys are going to see this? Of course they are, you know, but um, it's not for them. <laughs> uh, there will be in jokes that that only queer Jews will get, that only Jews will get. And and I think that that's um, a, a really integral part of writing this. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think, I hope, I hope many people see it, as, as many people have enjoyed Fiddler, right? Like, Fiddler is not just for Jews, but it has a different, it resonates differently with, with Jewish people. That brings me into like a much larger thing that made me realize that if I ask this question, it's going to be a whole other podcast around around casting queer Jews because we talk so much on the show about our difference of opinions on like, should you cast Jews to play Jews? But now there's like another element. Are you casting like only queer Jews in these roles? But I feel like that's another conversation which maybe we can shelf for another time. I mean, I can say I, I, I can say a quick thought about this. Go for it. Because I've, I, I think a lot about this in terms of, because, um, you know, in terms of casting queer, trans, Jews, all of that. And, and, and my opinion is, like, um, who, who never gets to play themselves, right? If cis people constantly play trans people, trans people don't get cast as cis people. So you're actually just, you're actually just erasing trans people from an industry. If you look super Jewish, you're probably not going to get to play, you know, a ton of goys. So 
you're erasing people from an industry. And that's my opinion. So I'm like, I think you should cast people as people so that they actually get to participate in an industry. Um, and until and until trans people, until queer people, until Jews are fully immersed, Jews are different. Jews fucking run Broadway, like let's be real. Um, but like until until these folks are just so immersed in in industry, I think we have to continue to prioritize their casting and their inclusion. Toby, uh, before we run out of time, I'm really curious about your project about the Jewish the queer Jewish wedding project. I will be getting married in 50 days. Um, we're doing a queer wedding at my Reform Synagogue. Do you have any tips that I can prepare myself for? Oh my God, yeah. I'm starting to gather so many tips. In fact, that's, maybe this is also a separate, entirely separate podcast. But <laughs> we, we can talk post-podcast yeah, too if you want. You and your partner, literally, actually, I'm going to send you a link and you and your partner need to talk to me. In a, Please, in a few weeks. No. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've been learning about all these really interesting ways that people have been querying these ceremonies because both some of the ritual aspects and some of the language are heavily gendered um, and finding ways to like keep integrating these traditions but like sort of take some of the intensity of gender roles out of it and change some of the language. And some of the language changes are not even because of gender stuff, but because some of the language is about ownership in a way that would make anyone, any sort of, you know, progressive or even modern person kind of uncomfortable. Um, so, I mean, what what have you been struggling with, I guess, is my question. There's a lot of different aspects, so... Who gets to break the glass at the end of the ceremony? Uh, oh, okay, okay. That, that, that I got. That I got. What I have seen, and this is, I've seen a lot of, um, uh, like, couples that are two women figuring out, is, like, just getting sort of, like, a bigger glass that both people can jump on at the same time. Oh, okay. I talked to one couple who sort of had, has a friend who's a glassmaker, who's like a glass blower and made them sort of like a double-sided glass with like a marble in the middle and then they could both like jump on either side of it and smash each side and then keep the marble. Um, so those are some options. Just having two glasses and both of you jumping on them at the same time. Um, it's a lot of like doubling up or finding alternatives or finding like, oh, okay, if one person's going to take on this role, what's sort of an equivalent that the other partner can do, maybe at a different point in the ceremony that feels equalizing or feels like something both of them want to do, um, or just even based on, like, vibes, like, who wants to do what, you know? I talked to one couple who, uh, they're two women, but one of them had a, uh, before the ceremony, like, a tish, and one of them had a bedeckin, and it was simply because that's, they looked at sort of what the feelings of those two different rituals are and they wanted to do different things right before the chuppah and so they they based it just on their own desires and personality and not on gender um and I thought that was so beautiful so yeah just like double things up and be creative with it I'm always really encouraging of people to be creative with ritual and creative with tradition and that like don't be afraid to like 
fuck it up. Like you're not you're not gonna ruin Judaism by playing around with a ritual. Like we've 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 gone through a lot worse. We can we can take it. <laughs> Our tradition can take a lot. <laughs> I got to give you a data point. Uh, I'm I'm a rabbi and. I do a lot of weddings, well, a lot. I do a fair amount of weddings, and I offer all my couples these options um, to break, uh, just as for the for the glass breaking. And I tell them, you know, I've seen um, young uh, religious Zionist couples in Israel who decided that they both want to break the glass, and they use a fluorescent tube, like a long fluorescent tube, so that they can like let it stretch along the chuppah or both glasses. Or I say, you know what, you don't have to be the one who's breaking the glass as the traditional male. Um, you know, they, uh, the, you know, the bride can can break the glass, and everybody is fascinated by the idea that it doesn't have to be one person who is the male breaking the glass. And yet, I have yet to have a wedding in all the years that I've done weddings where what where they were like they're all fascinated by it, but ultimately they always end up choosing right that the that the groom should go and break the glass as tradition, whatever it is. They think it's going to, you know, freak people out. It's, oh, it's too much for us and we can't handle it. But I, in all my experience, I have offered it to every single couple and nobody just takes oh, me up wow. on it. That's interesting to me. Just a fascinating extra. Sadie, you were trying to say something. Oh, no. I just was going to add, I was like, my partner and I, we, we broke two glasses and my parents were silly and gave us like the thickest glass. Uh, so I practiced. I bought four identical. I bought four identical glasses, and I practiced on like two of them just to make sure that I had it. And then the wedding day was like without a hitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, that's another tip, David. Get a thin glass. Get a breakable glass. <laughs> you don't want your guests Noted. standing there as you Thank like you. try five times. So this leads me to my last point, or or by any chance, um, you know. Entirely theoretically, Alana, you know, the breaking the glass actually leads to somebody in the hospital. I was um, thinking it, but I didn't say it. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> He's referring to a show I was in where this happens. Oh, no. Fictionally. Not in real. So this leads me um, to my last question, actually. Really, it's a good segue uh, to my last question, which is uh, a bit serious, um, but really, I'm sure uh, you guys have some thoughts on this. Um, do you still have to explain... Um, to some Jews, to a lot of Jews, that, you know, adding a queer interpretation doesn't take away from, you know, whatever is else is existing. Um, you know, that like saying that some of Tevi's daughters might have been queer does not, you know, ruin Fiddler for, you know, the people that just want to read it straight or that, um, that, you know, having these queer rituals existing for queer couples in, you know, in, in marriage spaces um, doesn't mean that all of a sudden every wedding is going to have to like be queer and that there's space for all of it. It could be, but I'm saying, but I think that sometimes people hear these things, people of a, you know, of a different generation. And, and it's like, they, there's a certain threateningness that when like, oh, we're going to queer everything. Do you sort of have to, you know, deal with that notion that like, well, first of all, what would be wrong with that? And or if that if you think that there's something wrong with that, don't worry. There's still plenty of heteronormativity in Judaism for everybody to go around. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that to ta to tack on to that. What other things that I have seen that I'm curious about um, is queering like Torah passages, like looking at passages and and either like reinterpreting them or interpreting them from like a queer lens. And I've had people kind of ask the question who are not queer saying like isn't this kind of taking it a little far like we're kind of reimagining the whole Torah and it's like who cares people there's like a thousand interpretations to the Torah why can't this be another one but go for it 
reimagining the Torah is what Jews have done forever. It's what we do. It's the whole thing. <laughs> um, literally reimagining and reinterpreting for every generation. Like that's, that's the thing. That's what we do. <laughs> um, God, that's so, I, it, it is something I have, I have encountered, but I'm, uh, I'm honestly so disinterested in. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not that interested in the naysayers. I'm not that interested in people who, in every era and generation of Judaism, there have been people saying, the buck stops here. There have been people saying, no more changes, no more progress. We stop it here. We, we freeze time here. And they can say that and they're gonna be lost to history and they have been lost to history and they will continue to be lost to history and again Judaism is a process it is constant change and evolution tied to tradition and we are in we are on the precipice of incredible Jewish expansion being led by queer folk being led by women people who have been kept from being publicly interacting with tradition for thousands of years. Straight men have been allowed to riff on tradition and Torah for a good 2,000 years. We're in like generation three of women being able to openly come to Torah, like maybe generation two of queer folk being openly being able to come to Torah. And it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning, and I'm really fucking excited about the future. I'm excited yeah. for the Jewish future. Excellent. Sadie, you get the last word. <laughs> I have nothing to add. No, no, Toby gets the last word. I have nothing to add to that. Yes, Toby. Go see Sadie's play. Go to the Miles Nadal website, mnjcc.org slash qji to check out the incubator to see our cohorts and what their projects are. We have some like really incredible stuff coming. I'm going to plug the new landing page for my project, queering-the-jewish-wedding.card.co. And that's where you can check it out and talk to me and the, the project itself and all our wonderful, wonderful cohort fellows and their projects are at milesnadaljcc.org slash qji. You can find links to the Queer Jewish Incubator in the show notes, as well as links uh, to Toby and Sadie's work, um, Sadie's play, Toby's uh, project. Uh, and of course, you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. Toby, Sadie, thank you for being on Bonjour Chai. Thank you. This was great. Our word of wisdom this week is a bit different. Uh, we have an excerpt from our sister podcast, Rifkush. Rifka Campbell recently interviewed Michael Twitty, and we thought we'd give you a taste of that. To listen to the full episode, check out Rifkush at thecjn.ca slash Rifkush. So that's why I wrote Kosher Soul, and I really wanted to, you know, to talk about us as people, not as representatives of people's fantasies and, you know, imaginations, you know, what they think about, what, what is a black person, what is a Jew you know, of course, I'm queer as well. So that there's that. I'm I'm the triple threat, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say in that way. Okay, so this could sound really weird, but <laughs> I had this friend, and every time 
Actually, it was a friend and colleague. And every time it was time, you know, to do the pride parade and all that, I would say to him, I said, this is the only time of the year that you trump me. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Otherwise, because, you know, I said, I got the black thing going. I got the female thing going. I got the Jewish thing going. But this time of year, you trump me. <laughs> and he's like, I damn right I do. So that's what, that's what I thought of. You made me smile when you said that. The threat. Yeah, the threat of, you know, it's, it's you know, I, somebody was like, you know, said, when I said this during a tweet or something like that, I said, well, ah, oh, the, the triple threat of victimhood. I'm like, you you hear that and you hear victim. I hear I hear black, gay, and Jewish, and I hear survivor. I hear yeah, overcomer. Man. I yeah, hear man. I hear like creator of the culture that you enjoy, whether you hate me or not. Absolutely. I, you know all of those things. All of oh, because you know what, Michael? My mother used to say, three strikes." And you can say you got the same thing. You can call it three strikes if you wish, right? Yes. However, what? The second part, the other part of that is you have three strikes. So you need to be three times better than everyone right. else. And That's that right. is what you strive for. That's right. I right? can't imagine if I was a woman. I'm already, I'm already angry enough about how women's bodies, lives, and choices are being used to um, manipulate policy, manipulate the world. People's, mm -hmm. you know, um, my sister-in-law... Um, had a had a had a, a situation that in the state of Missouri, they would have just said let her die. There you go. So I can't I can't I, I if, but if I was a woman, I can't even imagine how much. And I hear um, you know Rabbi Sandra Lawson and other people talk about the experiences of being you know black queer Jewish a woman mm -hmm. and in leadership roles how the struggle people. People push you. People don't let you be your full self instead of them. And that's, I think that goes back to what we we're talking about before. People, instead of people letting you flourish and be this, this outstanding opportunity to, to speak to so many things and bring, such, bring new things to the world, they want to limit you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm just like, nah, nah, we're not going to do that. Um, Kosher Soul was really hard to write because... It um, came to fruition during the Trump years, for one. Also, okay. it came to fruition during the year of Black Lives Matter. Wow. Um, you know, with George Floyd. And that's an international... I was going to say George Floyd. Yeah, international. Yeah. Inter an international thing. Because we were mm -hmm. all of our communities, Toronto, Washington, uh, London, Berlin, were responding. Paris. Mm -hmm. were responding to very similar situations. With yes. black people and law enforcement and tr and being contained in different, different ways. I mean, not to return to the Buffalo thing, but here's the bottom line. That white boy's still alive. In okay. Grand, in okay. Grand Rapids, Put it out what? there. In Grand Rapids, Put Michigan, not that long ago, several weeks ago, um, a Congolese American was stopped by a cop. He freaked out because guess, where he, guess what? Where he comes from, cops are not just it's a thing yeah I, I i was in the ivory coast and stopped by cops which are more like military which kind of make you yes. your pants a little yeah mm -hmm. he, mm -hmm. he got shot in the back of the head of the cop and the and the and the, and the, the the video is so clear and so disturbing and you're thinking to yourself 
He didn't have a weapon on him. He never committed a crime. He had never been convicted of a crime. He'd never been in jail. He'd never seen a jail. But this cop basically said, pop in the back of the head. It's, it's, it, it, I began to bawl immediately. But this kid has his life in front of him. I don't care oh if he is in a jail cell. So, Michael, really and truly, you know, the first thing, once you, once you get over the initial, dang. And you know, as sure as you know, the race of the shooter mm-hmm. without even looking, if right. they were taken in alive, you know, you, you immediately know their race. Right. And people, when, I remember when I used to say that out loud and people would look at me and say, oh, and I say, really? Here you go. Start naming names. I start naming, sitting in car, reading books, sitting in, uh, and I said, no weapon visible. No, this shot dead. I said, mm-hmm. somebody who is an, uh, with the excuse was, I feared for my life. Yet somebody actively w- with a weapon, with a weapon, clear danger. And they're taken in alive. If it yep. him, the the because I don't want to I don't want to give their names air. This this dude, the guy who the sh- church shooting, um, the 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 guy with recently with the protests and feared for his life, taken in with his weapon intact. Like don't don't feed me that stuff. Don't tell me it's not a pattern. Don't tell me subconscious, unconscious, bias. I don't care what you want to call it. Right. I call it fact. Yeah. It's like we don't we don't understand that these people can push back against systemic racism and, and implicit bias. It's not going to make it not a thing. It's exactly. It's not going to make it a lie. And that's the bottom line that we should. Because you're should, right. People do. They dig. They 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 double down on that issue. They double down on it and try and say, yeah, but but but. And I'm just like, do you know why, though? Do you know why? It's because they have been they have been taught by a renewed vigor among um, right wing extreme right wing extremists that this their power and their privilege as white folks to say. If, you know, it's, it's like these stories I would read from the time of slavery in America. And the worst ones are when a young person discovers it, that they are considered less than. They are not equals. And a lot, often, oftentimes the story will involve a, a, a plain fact. Like there, there, are four, there are four cows or the sky is blue or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're being told, no, there's two. And then they get viol- violent reaction. And then they go, what, 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 what the hell just happened to me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you abusing me? Mm-hmm. Why are you telling me that what I'm seeing is not reality? Why are you gas? You know, we would say gaslighting. Why are you gaslighting Gas, me? gaslight. Yeah. Because I can, yeah. and I will, yeah. and I will do whatever yeah. it takes, whatever it takes, mm-hmm. to put you in your place and to preserve mm-hmm. the future for my children over you because you don't matter. Don't you understand? And mm-hmm. until you confess that you are less than me. Well, that's the thing I will not do. I will not do. I will not confess that because if I confess that, why did God make me a human? Yeah. My Adam is not better than your Adam and your Adam is not better than my Adam. And if that is not the way we think, that is, that is the real Torah true Judaism. Now it's time in our show for our nachas, that thing that makes us feel good about being Jewish or 
being us uh, over the past week. What's been in your lives? Alana, what's your Nachs of the Week? So on the theme of this week's episode, um, I came across a film that is playing at the Tribeca Festival um, that is an Orthodox Jewish folklore horror movie, which is just the funniest sounding thing I've ever heard. It's a Danish movie about a lesbian romance threatened by an unhealthy relationship between one of the women and her Hasidic mother who lives downstairs. Um, and it's a horror movie. So I kind of want to see what that's all about when that becomes I mean, uh, publicly viewable. Ashkenaz, we have Dibbuks, we have Golems. We have a lot of like rich no, but horror there's material. So few horror movies. Oh, and so like sure. it just, you know, I haven't seen any of them. I know that there's like a couple out there. We talked about this once. Yeah, anyway, interesting. I uh, it sounds like sounds like quite an interesting mashup. Fascinating, David. What's your nachos? Well, Alana, I'm going to see your queer movie, but raise it up a notch. Uh, the queerest movie I've seen all week goes to Top Gun. Now, try and tell me whoever decided to set a love scene to take my breath away while sheer linen curtains billow in the background was not gay. Um, and if you're still not won over, you need to listen to this Quentin Tarantino character from the movie Sleep With Me explain the explanation. You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Top Gun. Oh, come on. Top, Top Gun is fucking great. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys waving their dicks around. It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. <laughs> That's serious. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick, all right? He's on the edge, man. He's right on the fucking line, all right? And you've got Iceman and all his crew. Right. They're gay. And they are. They represent the gay man, right. all right? And they're saying, go. Go the gay way. Go the gay way. He could go both ways. What about Kelly McGillis? Kelly McGillis, she's, she's, she's heterosexuality. She's saying, no, 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 no. Go the normal way. Play by the rules. Go the normal way. And they're saying, no. Go the gay way. Be the gay way. Go for the gay way. All right. That is what's going on throughout that whole movie. I rest my case. Alrighty, um, go Abby. So my nachos is uh, going to the Reboot Organization, um, which is an organization devoted to uh, rebooting lots of interesting uh, Jewish culture and Jewish ideas. Uh, they, they, the past few years, have been doing a Shavuot all night learnathon on Zoom called Dawn. And uh, this year, they decided, uh, as for their Dawn Festival, to do a really fascinating thing where they took a Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight, which is a classic composition, and uh, John Schott and a whole host of other performers performed it for eight hours um, and did an eight-hour interpretation of it all night over Shavuot. Now, of course, uh, you see, this is one of the benefits of Zoom. I didn't get to see it. It all could have been just on YouTube or whatever. Um, I didn't get to see it live because I don't. Uh, I wasn't using a screen over Shavuot, but they do have it up on their page and on YouTube and you can check out the entire eight-hour performance and how they take this one song and really let it unfold uh, over an extended period of time. Uh, it's not explicitly a Jewish uh, composition but I think they did something profoundly Jewish uh, by taking this round midnight and performing it at midnight and turning it into this long musical meditative experience. So a uh, shout out to Reboot um, for doing round midnight for eight hours straight. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of Friday, June 10th, Shabbat Parashat Nassau. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 